Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hello, Micah and Eve. Welcome to another Fertility and Sterility on Air. Lovely to have you here this morning. Good morning, Kurt. Good morning, Micah. Good morning, both. Glad to be here. Great. Today, we're going to talk about the table of contents for the March 2021 issue. It happens to be volume 115, number three, if you're keeping score at home. It's a good issue. We're going to have a lot to talk about. So I want to thank some of my loyal listeners who have contacted me. Liz Rubin and Gabby Gossman, appreciate your audience and uh, your listening. Shout out to the uh, Peloton Fertility Dax group. Always fun riding with you guys, and I hope you're also listening. Glad to hear so many people are tuning in to listen. So we're going to start this month with the Views and Reviews, which was led by Dom DeZiegler and extensively explores the current status and challenges of evaluating and treating recurrent pregnancy loss. The articles start off by Richard Scott discussing the role of the sperm, the oocyte, and the embryo in RPL, including the review of emerging evidence on sperm diagnostics and sorting techniques. Next, Carbonell and colleagues discuss uterine factors and their association with RPL, ranging from congenital malformations to acquired pathology, such as fibroids and polyps. Pertea and colleagues then discuss endometrial causes of RPL, including endometritis, adenomyosis, and chronic endometritis. In their review, they also perform a systematic review and meta-analysis, which demonstrates that 30% of women with RPL have evidence of chronic endometritis and that treatment may improve fertility. They even go further to suggest that assessment for chronic endometritis should be performed in all women with RPL. Finally, Alessandru Frenaziak and colleagues discuss immunologic and thrombophilic causes of RPL. Overall, this is a fantastic set of articles written by leading researchers in recurrent pregnancy loss. It's a very practical read for any clinician who provides reproductive care. Micah, were there any surprises in what you read? Did you anything that's not pretty straightforward or controversial? Yeah, I think the finding of 30% of patients with RPL having evidence of chronic endometritis, which I know the diagnosis in and of itself is uh, a little bit controversial, uh, and that treating that may provide improved fertility outcomes. So that was data that I had not necessarily seen before in, in the way that they systematically reviewed it. Micah, did they look at CD138 cells, or were they looking um, for the presence of neutrophils, or how are they defining chronic endometritis? Yeah, I think you're getting to some of the controversy in that question. And since this was a systematic review, you had different studies defining it by different methodologies. So uh, certainly that brings some confusion to the topic. All right, on to the fertile battle. Thanks, Kurt. This month's fertile battle is near and dear to me and is titled Training the Next Generation of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Subspecialists. I had the pleasure and privilege of collaborating with Dr. Zev Rosenwax, who is one of the editorial editors, as we all know, for Fertility and Sterility. I've always admired Dr. Rosenwax, but have never really gotten to know him before working together on this piece. It was really a special experience and one of the highlights of my career to date as an associate editor. The impetus for this piece arose at a fellowship director meeting with ABOG and ACGME, 
about changing the research requirements and fellowship from 18 months of protected research time to a minimum of 12 months of research. The discussion inspired a deeper dive into the history of REI Fellowship Program accreditation. The switch from ABOG is an accrediting organization to ACGME and some of the immediate and future directions of the field. The introduction to this battle was co-authored by me and Dr. Rosenwax, and the debate was split between those that favor maintaining 18 months to those that favor reduction to 12. On the side of the debate arguing for a reduction in research to 12 months was Alan DeCherney, Gautam Chaudhary, and Tommaso Falcone. Dr. DeCherney discusses the need for each fellow to have an area of concentration, such as genetics, surgery, epidemiology, pediatric and adolescent gynecology, reproductive science and endocrinology, and for each fellow to develop a niche within this area. Fellows who are planning an academic career should obtain a second graduate degree, such as a PhD or MPH. Dr. Chaudhary's views are in line with Dr. DeCherney's and argue to reduce fellowship training to two years, except for those that desire research careers, and those fellows should go on to get a PhD or a master's degree. Dr. Falcone believes that research time should be 12 months in order to allow for more time spent in reproductive surgery, and that fellows should use the six months that was previously protected for research for protected time in the operating room. On the 18-month side, pieces were written by me, Marcel Cedars, and Richard Scott. In my piece, I talk about the paper that was published by the board of SREI last year that showed that board-certified REIs have published 1,000 peer-reviewed manuscripts each year for the last 10 years. My concern is that the unintended consequence of the reduction in research requirements will lead to a reduction in future research and a reduction in innovation emanating from U.S. fellowship program graduates. Dr. Cedars argues that fellowships should produce individuals well-versed in the entirety of the field and that fellows need to understand research, even if they don't plan to direct research. She makes a really insightful point regarding those who are underrepresented, who may have more debt being steered away from an academic career when those voices are so badly needed. Dr. Scott makes some fantastic points regarding the IVF laboratory as basic science, and that fellows should spend time rotating through the IVF lab to gain a greater understanding of the challenges and unanswered questions. Bottom line is that the field is evolving and fellowships are evolving. The question remains is how to best evolve to maintain the highest quality and standards of care to provide the best care for our patients. Micah, Kurt, what do you guys think? I was glad to see you put this together, Eve. I think all of us as program directors were surprised when ACGME told us that announcement. And uh, you know, as you see from these articles, each program has its unique strength. Thomas Falcone talking about surgery, Richard Scott talking about the embryology lab. If you're interested in epidemiology, you can go to Penn. And I think we need to have the ability to have the, that flexibility in how we build our programs and we can't fit us all into one size. Yeah, I, I agree that this was well worth everyone's reading, um, you, wherever you stand on this argument. Uh, I guess my only concern is it bothered me that it's being thrust upon us, this decision, rather than us making it ourselves. I mean, I, when, when I started in academics, I was told I needed to protect myself from clinical medicine for a few years. I didn't believe it at the time, um, but, but clearly that's true. So if you really want to make an impact, you need extra training. But I do also fear it's easier to go down the clinical path, especially those with debt, and we might lose some good minds. Okay, um, I'm going to go next, and I want to talk about the, uh, the inkling this month. And this month's inkling is by uh, 
Robert Brannigan, one of our editorial editors, and is titled, Is it Time to Revisit Follicle Simulating Hormone Therapy for Men with Azospermia? While this inkling is a relatively specific clinical situation, I would encourage all with interest regarding empiric drug use therapy to read this inkling. This is an example of, one, we think we understand the pathophysiology, two, there are limited therapeutics, in this case, the use of FSH for subfertile men, and three, the results of when using this therapy are controversial. We think it should work. Our understanding of the anatomy and physiology suggests it should work. However, the data supporting results are mixed at best. As Dr. Brannigan reviews, just because we think it should work doesn't mean we should always use it, especially given the costs and the side effects and false expectations. So this is a well-written inkling that can apply to many therapeutic situations in reproductive medicine and in other disciplines of medicine as well. Thank you, Kurt. So moving on to the ASRM pages, we have one publication this month called Minimum Standards for Practices Offering Assisted Reproductive Technologies, a Committee Opinion. This document was developed in collaboration with ASRM, SART, and SRBT. The document focuses on minimum ART standards ranging from key personnel to informed consent and to record keeping. It's a short, concise article, but is a must read for anyone who provides ART care. So now it's time to go on to the meat of the article. Let's get into some original research. Eve, I think you're starting us off. Thanks, Kurt. This first article is called Obstetric Outcomes in Pregnancies Resulting from In Vitro Fertilization Are Not Different in Fertile Sterilized Patients Compared to Infertile Women, a Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, SART, Database Analysis. There is ongoing debate concerning whether ART causes adverse pregnancy outcomes. In many situations, it is impossible to separate the effect of the technology from the effect of the underlying disease process that requires a couple to utilize ART to achieve a pregnancy. The study by Valerie Libby with senior author Kevin Judy attempts to answer this question. This was a SART database retrospective study of autologous fresh non-donor cycles from 2004 to 2013. The authors compared preterm birth rates and low birth weight rates from IVF pregnancies in couples with infertility compared to couples with a history of a tubal ligation. The assumption here is that couples who undergo IVF after tubal ligation are normally fertile appropriate comparison group. More on this later, but remember that point. The authors refer to the study group as the infertile population and the comparison group of tubal sterilization as the fertile population. The analysis included over 500,000 cycles in infertile couples compared to 10,000 cycles in women with prior tubal ligation. As expected, there were some differences between the groups. Sterilized women were slightly older, had a slightly higher BMI, and 86% had more than two prior live births compared to 60% of infertile women who were nulliparous or primiparous. 32% of deliveries in the sterilization group are multiples compared to 30% in the infertile population. Wow, that's a really high multiple rate. There were no differences in live birth rates between groups. After adjusting for multiple pregnancy, the incidence of preterm birth and low birth weight was 2% higher in the sterilized group. The incidence of preterm delivery was 1.9% higher in the sterilized group. The authors conclude that since the perinatal outcomes in the sterilized group were similar to those of the infertile women, that it must be the technology, i.e. ART itself, that accounts for worse outcomes 
and not the underlying diagnosis of infertility. It's an astounding conclusion. I think the study is really flawed on multiple aspects, um, and I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this. But to me, it does not answer the question of technology or underlying disease process as the culprit. To me, the largest flaw is the assumption that the sterilization group is a fertile control. This completely undermines the concept of secondary infertility, which is equally prevalent as primary infertility. We have no way of knowing whether these women would have gone on to conceive had they not had a tubal ligation. Furthermore, the high multiple pregnancy rate calls into question the effect of the number of embryos transferred and how that may even impact singletons as there are some data showing gestational age at delivery is correlated with the number of initial heartbeats. Furthermore, we have zero information about paternal age, prior history, and this assumes that the male contribution plays no role. There was an astute reflections piece accompanying this article written by Robert Rids with senior author Kate Scheuer from the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. They also highlight the flaws of the manuscript. First, one of the highest predictors of preterm delivery is a history of preterm delivery. The SART database does not account for a history of preterm delivery. Grand multiparity has also been associated with preterm delivery, and quite possibly, the tubal ligation group may have already had upwards of four children. They also highlight the association of BMI and preterm delivery, and the higher BMI in the Paris group. There could and should have been better matching for comparisons. Furthermore, the higher pregnancy rate in the, quote, infertile population argues perhaps that the assumption that the other group was, quote, fertile does not hold up and really undermines the overall conclusions of this study. While large data database studies no doubt are important, the limitations are incredibly important as well. And I'm not sure that we can safely take away the point that ART is harmful based on these data. Kurt, Micah, what do you think? Eve, I'm really pleased that papers like this get published in Fertility and Serility because they really do allow a robust discussion. Um, this idea whether perinatal morbidity is associated with the underlying cause or the underlying technology is a really important question. I'm not sure this paper answers it, but I'm glad we're discussing it and I'm glad we can see the pros and cons of performing a study like this. Yeah, I mean, I think the best comparison group would truly be a, a comparison group that doesn't have infertility like same-sex male couples who use a gestational carrier where you're utilizing the technology because of absent biology and not because of a disease state. It does raise a good point that the population that they say is, quote, infertile also includes people with male factor, which technically might not be infertile, as well as third-party reproduction. Or did they exclude those patients? I think they made an effort to exclude third-party, but male factor infertility was definitely included. Micah, you have some thoughts on this paper? No, I think I agree with uh, the critiques that, he, that Eve said. It is difficult to find an appropriate control group and trying to marry this data with other data that shows uh, subfertile patients who get pregnant without ART often have outcomes similar to those who get pregnant with ART, suggesting that ART itself may not be the contributing factor. So I think it's another piece of information. I think it adds to the discussion, but I, I agree with the points that I don't think it definitely determines that ART is the cause of increased preterm birth in these patients. Yeah, it definitely shows the intuitive aspects of a natural experiment. We really want to believe the answers of this, but we have to be careful that sometimes these natural experiments don't really give us the truth, so to speak.
or we don't want to believe the answer that we see. Like, I don't want to believe that it's the ART that causes an issue and not the underlying disease process. So I think it, it all depends upon the angle at which you view this. Well said. Well, I have another paper that I think is going to generate a lot of conversation and is also going to be really highly quoted and discussed. I'd like to review the study by Ashley Teagues from um, uh, IVRMA with a very strong list of distinguished investigators, including senior author Richard Scott, and call out to my fellow mate, Arthur Castlebaum, who's one of the authors as well. This study is titled, Multicenter Perspective, Blinded Non-Selection Study, Evaluating the Predictive Value of Aneuploidy Diagnosis and Impact on Biopsy. So there's a lot in that title, and that's why we want to believe the answers in this paper, and, we'll, and let's go through them and see what they really show. The study is timely. It'll clearly be well cited, but I want to be clear on what its implications are and what they're not. We all understand that pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, or PGTA, is increasing exponentially or is already increased exponentially. This technology, however, has raised a number of very clinically important questions. For example, does PGTA result in the discard of embryos with significant reproductive potential? And does trophectoidum biopsy decrease the ability of the blastus to implant? The results of the clinical utility of PGTA have been evaluated in a recent controversial but highly publicized randomized controlled trial suggesting that PGTA did not improve the outcome of pregnancy in most ages. However, there are a number of trials that are out there that may not be definitive, but suggest a decrease in time to pregnancy and a reduce and a reduction in miscarriage. Cost effectiveness is still debated. So with that as a background, uh, unfortunately, I will not be able to discuss many of those questions that I just raised because they're not addressed in this study, even though they sound like they might be in the title. This study addresses a very specific question that has yet to be investigated adequately. The aim of the study was to determine the predictive value of abnormal results, i.e., if I got a result of aneuploidy with the use of PGTA, is that actually predicting that someone is not going to get pregnant? Or, conversely, will it result in a live birth? So let me back up a second. A randomized control trial assessing the outcome, i.e. live birth, after a transfer of a tested or untested embryo will result in data suggesting if PGTA increases clinical utility. This type of trial will not assess whether the diagnosis of aneuploidy by PGTA was correct or not, or better said, did an abnormal result adequately predict a negative outcome of not getting pregnant. So the paper in this month's journal is attempting to determine if an embryo that is labeled aneuploid actually possesses the ability to give a healthy live birth. In epidemiologic terms, this study is assessing the test characteristics of PGTA, not its clinical utility. So I'm sure I'll get back to that point with even Micah, and your help, but I want to be clear up front that this study does not address the problems of overcalling abnormal embryos. This study is only assessing the call of aneuploid. It really doesn't discuss much about the results of mosaicism or when you don't get results. So with that as a background, let me describe this non-selection study. A group of good prognosis young patients underwent routine IVF and obtained blastocysts. The best blastocyst was then biopsied and cryopreserved. The best blastocyst by morphology was then transferred without knowledge of the PGTA results. Thus, the pregnancy outcomes could, in retrospect, be correlated with the PGTA results. A secondary objective of the study was to assess the impact of trophectoderm biopsy on pregnancy rates. 
To accomplish this, the authors looked at two groups. The group I just mentioned, who received a biopsy, but then the embryo was placed back, and a second control group of similar patients who underwent embryo transfer without a biopsy. Again, the best embryo picked by morphology, a so-called historical control group. If no difference between the study groups and the historical group were found, indirectly, one could implicate the only difference between them was the biopsy, and you could attribute if there was lower implantation rate or lower pregnancy rate by actually biopsying an embryo. So some of the details were worth noting is that all the biopsy were evaluated by a single laboratory, therefore decreasing one of the variables that's suggested as a problem with PGTA, which is multiple labs might give multiple results. This is obviously a good laboratory, the RMA laboratory. The study was conducted between 2014 and 15, and then they didn't have enough patients, so they reopened the study again in 2018 to 2019. The authors claim that the laboratory and clinical protocols were similar across all these enrollment periods and are contemporary. So what are the overall findings? The overall findings of this study is that the predictive value of an aneuploid result obtained by PGTA is 100%. In other words, no one with a diagnosis of aneuploid had a live birth rate. Now, about 25% of them did get pregnant, but nobody ended up having a live birth. The predictive value of a negative test, i.e., the embryo was normal, was around 65%, i.e. 65% of those who received a euploid embryo actually had a sustained pregnancy. In terms of the second objective, the pregnancy rate in the historical group with no biopsy was similar to the pregnancy rate in this group that did have a biopsy. They both were around 45 47%, with a relative risk of around 1.17 in favor of actually having a higher pregnancy rate in the embryos that were actually biopsied, but the confidence intervals were actually overlapping. So one of the problems with the study is recreating the numbers. I'm sorry that the statistical geek in me is going to come out, but I tried to replicate some of the data using the start flow sheets and the data. For example, it says there were 484 single frozen blastocysts transferred, yet the predictive value in the paper is only based on 416 of them. So what happened to the others? The others were a combination of no call, around 3%, or other abnormalities, such as whole chromosome mosaics or segmental abnormalities. It should be notable that the sustained pregnancy rates was 68% for the chromosome mosaics and around 31% for the chromosome abnormalities. So if you include these findings in the predictive value, it doesn't change the positive predictive value, but it certainly does change the negative predictive value or the predictive value of having an abnormal embryo. If you include other than completely normal, in other words, abnormal findings in PGTA, which includes mosaics and segmental anomalies, the predictive value is only 86%, not 100%. Thus, about one in seven embryos called abnormal will actually result in a pregnancy. So the data in this paper are presenting the best case scenario for predictive value, the predictive value of only the call of aneuploid, not of the result of other abnormalities you might find with PGTA. I want to be clear, this is very valuable data. It hasn't been presented before, but I just want to be careful that we don't overinterpret it. So another potential criticism of this paper is the secondary analysis suggesting that the overall ongoing pregnancy rate after biopsy is similar to the control group. While I can't argue that the statistical confidence intervals overlap and therefore it, they are similar and not different, it's really hard to draw a definitive conclusion on this. The comparison group was a very large group of similar patients in these practices. But really, 
it was only controlled for differences in the populations, such as BMI, embryo quality, and endometrial thickness. There was no attempt to control for underlying diagnosis, stimulation patterns, and it's really unclear how the so-called matching was done. For example, there was a two-fold difference in the number of women in the control group that had decreased ovarian reserve, higher in the control group, which might have actually brought their pregnancy down. It's kind of hard to believe that we should make definitive conclusions based on a cohort study like this, especially when you find out that there's a 17% increase in pregnancy rate when you do a biopsy. I would imagine there may be significant differences in these two populations, and just by comparing them in a historical group is misleading us. So there's a lot of data in this paper, like the clinical pregnancy rates for those with an aneuploid embryo transferred, the type of PGTA result based on age, pregnancy rates by age. I mean, I really think you should go look at this paper. This, you're going to learn a lot. I applaud the effort that went into this study by outstanding investigators. This is a complex study, and I encourage you to read it carefully. It'll be highly referenced and reviewed, as I mentioned before. I bet we'll even have a journal club global about this in the future. So unfortunately, I don't believe this study answers the important questions we have about the clinical utility of PGTA. Be careful not to overinterpret the positive conclusions of this study. I'm certainly not saying that this study says PGTA is a bad test or that we shouldn't use it, but these data did not definitively prove that it is. The point made in this paper and the excellent reflections by Dr. Hume and Frankfurter that a randomized control trial may show poor results if the test is actually not validated is true. If you don't have a valid test, it's hard to show that it works in a clinical trial. If there's noise resulting from these answers, you might get the wrong answer. So this paper purports to validate the test with a single laboratory and suggests that randomized controlled trials are planned using this laboratory only. However, my parting thought is that if that is true, if only one lab can perform PGTA, and the reason that previous trials have failed was because the laboratory standards of other labs are not up to snuff, then what does that say about what we're doing today where 50 to 70% um, women undergoing IVF are getting PGTA by many, many labs across the globe. Interesting, interesting study. Eve, Micah, what do you think? So I think this article has a lot to unpack. I was actually confused as to why they lumped in the biopsy study along with the PGT validation study. There was a previous paper that was published by the same group showing that in their hands, their lab biopsy doesn't matter. So to me, that wasn't new information. Where I thought the meat of this article came in really is in that flow chart that looks at the potentially eligible participants all the way down to those that had embryo transfers. What I thought was really interesting was that there were 16 patients who had whole chromosome mosaic embryos that were transferred. But what's really particularly interesting about this is that the analytics from this particular PGT laboratory did not consider those embryos to be mosaic. The bioinformatics actually called those euploid. And so I think that's a really important point. So in those 16 whole chromosome mosaic embryos that were transferred, there was one negative test, two biochemical losses, two clinical miscarriages, and then 11 sustained implantations that led to live birth. And what I worry about from these data are that people are now going to say, oh my goodness, you can transfer mosaics, they're going to lead to live birth. But what I think is really important is you have to look at the bioinformatics of the particular laboratory 
that you're using the platform, the software that's looking at the algorithm and the interpretation of that algorithm. And to their point on validation, I'm not certain that I can take what our laboratory calls a mosaic, transfer it and get the same results. And so I think for those centers that are transferring mosaics, they have to do the validation studies to see whether or not that holds true. But in this particular laboratory, they didn't actually read these as mosaic, they read them as euploid. And so to me, that was actually one of the most fascinating points about the study is that it's not the label of what you call it, but how you interpret the bioinformatics and then how you extrapolate the live birth or the data that results from that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, Eve. You know, uh, Richard Scott has long held that you should do these sort of validation, non-selection studies to get your predictive values before you do the, the clinical trials. And so I think he's being true to what he's established as the pipeline of how you do this research. I think the point's made that uh, really the strength of this study is to predict whole chromosome aneuploidies predictive value. And I think the study was pretty clear on that. As Kurt pointed out, some of those in-between calls are, are some of the ones that we, a lot of us clinically want to know the answer to, and the study doesn't necessarily give us that. And I agree, his, their prior study of sibling embryos, where one was biopsied, one wasn't, both were transferred, and then they did DNA fingerprinting to establish that uh, biopsy was harming cleavage stage embryos, but not trophectoderm embryos, it was much more robust data for answering that, that second question than, than this trial was. I think the point that if you have a whole chromosome aneuploidy, you can be pretty confident that that is not going to lead to a live birth. To me, that's the, the single most important takeaway point. And so a lot of the hype that's out there in the lay press about our field throwing away all of these embryos and we may be overcalling abnormalities, I do think the study has great utility in showing that those embryos will not lead to a live birth. But I think where it fails to answer the question is what about the gray area embryos? And I think for most of us, that's what we struggle with uh, on a daily basis. Let me end with it, another way of looking at this. If you were able to rank all the embryos from a certain cohort as to most likely to succeed to least likely to succeed, what this paper does is says the bottom embryos, the ones you're not gonna transfer back are not gonna result in pregnancy. That's important information, but that's really not the information I want as a clinician. I want to know if the one that I'm labeling as the top embryo is actually going to be better in resulting in a pregnancy than the one I didn't biopsy. So this is important information. I applaud the study. I don't want to be harsh on the study, but I just want everyone listening to understand what this study is teaching us. It does not tell us that PGTA is actually helping your pregnancy rates. Right. It goes back to the point that you wanted to make before about validation versus utility. Yeah, I'm pleased to know that the, the call we thought was true, if you have an aneuploid embryo, it really is aneuploid, really is true. That's important information, but that's only part of the story is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's a great discussion. Kurt, I would love to spend an hour talking about this paper on a Journal Club Global with the authors and experts, because I think there's a lot here. So I think we got the plans. So moving on to our next article in assisted reproduction, we know that some patients seen in fertility clinics uh, are not infertile, but they're there because they need donor sperm in order to achieve pregnancies. These include single women, same-sex couples, heterosexual couples where the male is azospermic, to name just some. It's unclear if these ovulatory women benefit from the addition of ovarian stimulation to their donor sperm IUI protocol. 
This is addressed in a study by Carpinello from the NIH and Divine from Shady Grove Fertility, in which I am a co-author, in the study called, Does Ovarian Stimulation Benefit Ovulatory Women Undergoing Therapeutic Donor Sperm Insemination? This was a retrospective cohort study of over 6,000 donor sperm IUI cycles, roughly evenly split between natural cycle IUIs and Clomid or Letrozole IUIs. In the primary analysis, ovarian stimulation use had a 4% higher clinical pregnancy rate per cycle, 22% versus 18%. And the ongoing pregnancy rate narrowed and was only half a percent higher with the use of stimulation medications. However, multiple gestations rose from 2% in natural cycles to 11% with the addition of medications. The authors conclude that ovarian stimulation in ovulatory women undergoing donor sperm IUI adds a small gain in pregnancy that is outweighed by the associated greater risk of increasing multiple gestation. The commentary by Insania and Ginsberg from Harvard notes that these data are consistent with another study from Bressler and Mercereau from the University of North Carolina published in FNS a year ago, which also showed no benefit from ovarian stimulation in ovulatory women undergoing donor sperm IUI. They agree that natural cycle IUI should be considered as the first line treatment, and they conclude with, quote, as is often the case, sometimes less is more. Yeah, that's fascinating. I do seem to recall, though, that the Bressler study showed benefit in patients undergoing uh, IUI who are over 40 or over 38 using ovarian stimulation. Did this study look at it by age, Micah? Yeah, this study did break it down by age, and the results were pretty consistent across the age groups in this study. Uh, and this study was 6,000 patients compared to a couple hundred in the other. So that may have been a difference in the age groups as they got broken down into small sample sizes. Fascinating. I know in my practice, oftentimes, particularly with same-sex couples, they're very antsy to get pregnant. The cost of donor sperm is high, and not infrequently, couples ask about using ovulation induction. And so you would say, based on this, don't do it, right? I would say this at least gives you data to sit down and show the patient uh, of what they're gaining, which is relatively minimal, and what they're risking, and then come to an informed decision with the patient. But yes, in general, uh, I tend to try to guide those patients to natural cycle IUI if they're comfortable with that. Yeah, well done study. This next study is the association between women's age, stage, morphology, and implantation of the competent blastocyst, a multi-center cohort study. The article is by Buell Borgstrom with senior author Ulrich Kismodal, both from Denmark, and they use the Danish Medical Birth Registry. The study included just under 5,000 women with a fresh or frozen single blast transfer that resulted in a live birth. The primary objective was to assess the effect of female age on embryo morphology and implantation. Because they only studied positive outcomes, they used HCG as a marker of implantation. The authors observed that in fresh embryo transfer, increasing female age was associated with lower blastocyst expansion stage and lower morphology scores, but this was not seen in frozen transfer cycles. The author also compared HCG levels and found that fresh embryo transfer was associated with lower HCG compared to frozen embryo transfer cycles. In both the fresh and frozen cycles, younger women had initially lower HCG levels than women who are slightly older, although note that their younger women were ages 18 to 24 and their slightly older women were 25 to 29. 
And then among women who are over 30, there were no differences. There was a really nice reflections piece written by Philip Romansky and Heiju Kang from Cornell summarizing the study. They note that it's important to counsel patients that lower quality embryos can lead to live birth and low initial HCG levels can be observed in normally developing pregnancies. They remind us that one size does not fit all and that embryos that seem slow to develop at first often produce higher and more reassuring markers of a successful pregnancy. So nice small study and adds to our knowledge base. Great. I'll continue on and talk about uh, impact of vitamin D in human embryo implantation, a prospective study of women undergoing fresh embryo transfer. The first author is Dr. Kai with senior author Dr. Hocker, and this is from a large academically affiliated private practice in China. As always, what impresses me about these studies from China is the number of women enrolled. It's just incredible. In this case, more than 2,500 women undergoing fresh embryo transfer in one institution. The goal of the study was to measure the association of free and total 25-hydroxymic vitamin D before embryo transfer and associate with pregnancy outcomes. Overall, this is a negative study, and there were no associations with either total or free vitamin D levels with successful embryo transplantation for women undergoing fresh transfers. Now, I just summarized a very nice and comprehensive study in just a few sentences, but perhaps what's more interesting is the controversy that this study shows, or at least delves into. Vitamin D has been studied in reproductive outcomes before with mixed results. Currently, many clinicians are supplementing vitamin D in women undergoing IVF, and this study contributes to the negative association. However, critics are going to point to the fact that this is the first study using free vitamin D, whereas others have looked at total vitamin D, and they'll also point to the intricacies and problems of the assay and interpretation of these results. Finally, of course, one cannot overlook the fact that this is a very homogeneous population in terms of ethnicity and geography and other IVF characteristics, and very few were actually vitamin D deficient. So as well summarized in the inkling by Dr. Klimzak and Frazniak, the study provides very valuable data in the area of reproductive medicine. To date, vitamin D does not seem to show any benefit in follicular genesis or embryo growth or implantation. Its role hasn't really been clinically defined. While it looks like supplementing vitamin D has very little harm and may actually have public health benefits, it's not clear yet that it improves IVF outcome, at least not in a large number of Chinese women in one center. Yeah, I'm just amazed at how many studies there are on vitamin D for implantation, for fibroids. It's really an emerging area of research with lots of questions. I think more questions than answers. I know time will tell whether this is just the latest hammer. I mean, we all go through these waves of studying and association, and then it kind of peters out, and then we go on to the next one. We'll see if this is a real one or not. So the next study is another one this month looking at time-lapse imaging from Del Canto and colleagues in Italy in their paper, Faster Fertilization and Cleavage Kinetics Reflect Competence to Achieve a Live Birth After ICSI, But This Application Fades with Maternal Age. This was a retrospective study of 1,400 embryos transferred after time-lapse imaging on day two or three at the cleavage stage. They found that embryos that developed faster to the two through eight cell stages were more likely to result in live birth in women who were less than 38 years old, but not in those who were 38 and older. The authors conclude that faster embryo growth is associated with live birth in younger women, but that's augmented by age in older women. 
In the commentary by Thomas Poole from San Antonio, Texas, he notes that this data largely confirms other studies that demonstrate that faster growing embryos are more likely to create a live birth. I do have a few critical comments on this paper. They transferred up to three embryos in these patients, but they don't comment on how they statistically accounted for the grade of three different embryos that resulted in only one pregnancy. The embryos were all cleavage stage transfers, and this probably is not generalizable to most of the U.S. practices. Finally, while these findings reach statistical significance, embryos that developed into a pregnancy only reach these cell stages on average one to two minutes before embryos that did not result in live birth, and the standard deviations of these data were three to six times larger than what the mean differences were, meaning that the data offered little clinical ability to discriminate embryos that would or would not result in a live birth. Overall, in my view, another time-lapse paper here confirms that this is a cool technology for us to learn and study more about embryo growth, but really this is a technology that has yet to be proven to have a practical clinical application for embryo selection. Thanks, Micah. This next paper is Effective Embryo Stage at Transfer on Placental Histopathology Features in Singleton Live Births Resulting from Fresh Embryo Transfers by Alexander volodarsky Perel with senior author Michael Dahan from McGill in Montreal. This was a retrospective cohort study that included all singleton live births after fresh embryo transfer from 2009 to 2017 in a single center. Inclusion criteria were fresh transfer with autologous oocytes. Patients with uterine anomalies or fibroids were excluded. And the aim of this study was to compare placental histopathological features in singleton live births after fresh cleavage stage and blast embryo transfers. There were 677 live births that were included in the analysis. 252 were from cleavage stage and 425 were from blastocyst stage embryos. They, the primary outcomes included anatomic inflammatory vascular malperfusion, and villus maturation placental features. Secondary outcomes were fetal, maternal, and perinatal complications. In their center in this time period between 2009 and 2017, every placenta at the time of delivery was collected and sent for both gross and histopathology, regardless of complications or mode of delivery. So a really unique study that really looked at something that I think is not commonly done at every institution. What they found was that demographics were similar between patients who had cleavage stage versus blastocyst transfers, though patients who underwent cleavage stage transfer had a higher number of embryos transferred. So what did they find? They found that maternal complications such as gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, and congenital malformations were very similar between these two groups. There were no differences in perinatal outcomes, such as gestational age of birth, mode of delivery, preterm birth rate, sex distribution, APGARs, or birth weights between the groups. The placental characteristics macroscopically, such as weight and cord length, were similar between groups, but there were some histopathologic differences. Most striking, the incidence of placenta previa was higher in the blastocyst transfer group. They also found other differences in histopathology, such as velamentous cord insertion, circummarginate membrane insertion, retroplacental hematoma, and others were associated with the stage of embryo it transfer. While the results were really interesting, and I would strongly encourage everybody to read this paper, there was not a clear winner, meaning that one type of transfer was associated with better outcomes than the other. 
Furthermore, there was such a low incidence of certain placental features, and therefore there was limited statistical power to make any sort of conclusions. The study also just looked at fresh transfers, and I can't help but wonder what we would see if we were comparing fresh to frozen transfers to see if there were differences between these groups. And I think it's really hard to know what changes with the placenta are due to the embryo versus the endometrium in the setting of superphysiologic estrogen levels. And additionally, similar to the study we previously reviewed, how does the underlying diagnosis of infertility come into play here? Are these placental malformations due to embryo culture, or are they due to the environment into which the embryo is transferred? Nevertheless, a really interesting study that adds to the literature on ART and outcomes. And again, going back to that question of, is it the technology or is it the environment into which the technology is placed? I think that's the real question that remains unanswered. Thank you, Eve. So we have one more article in the Robust Assisted Reproductive Technology section of the journal this month. In the study, The Effect of Needle Diameter on Pain During Oocyte Retrieval, a Randomized Controlled Trial, Busemann and colleagues from the Netherlands explore if a smaller egg retrieval needle reduces patient pain. This was a trial of patients randomized to a retrieval with a 16-gauge standard needle tip versus the experimental needle with a 20-gauge tip. This translates to a 1.6 millimeter diameter down to 0.9 millimeters. It's important to note that these patients underwent egg retrieval with oral pain medication and IV fentanyl only, so they were not sedated and they were conscious for the procedure. Around 100 patients were randomized and pain score during and after the retrieval was reduced in the smaller needle size. However, the difference was relatively small at zero out of 10 with the small needle compared to one to two out of 10 in the standard needle group at the various time points. The patients who used the larger needle did request more fentanyl during the procedure, and overall egg yield was not different between the two needle groups. The authors conclude that the smaller needle reduces pain score and pain medication needed for TVOR. While there was not an accompanying reflections on this piece, I did note that the reduction in pain was statistically significant, but was relatively small, and it's unclear if these data would apply to programs who use sedation, such as propofol, for the egg retrieval. However, this is a very nice, simple, well-designed study that demonstrates that smaller needles may reduce pain during and following uh, egg retrieval without compromising egg yield. So if you're going to have an awake retrieval, then ask for a small needle. <laughs> yes, take-home point. I was impressed the nugget there, though, was that you get the same amount of eggs. I mean, I think we all fear that we're going to limit our egg retrieval if we have a really small needle. I remember when we used to flush, too, because we were afraid we wouldn't get eggs. So the next study I'm going to present is in the endometriosis category. The title is Infertility in Women with Bowel Endometriosis, First-Line Assisted Reproductive Technology Results in Satisfactory Cumulative Live Birth Rates. The study, first author is Dr. Main Gein, with senior author Dr. Chaprone from very good investigators out of Paris. So this is a prospective, uncontrolled cohort study, really a case series, evaluating the success of ART in women diagnosed with bowel endometriosis. There's an ongoing debate on whether endometriosis affects ART outcomes, and I'm lucky enough that some of my papers have been included in that debate. However, this paper doesn't address that issue, and instead, it is a demonstration that IVF can be successful and is successful in about 64% of people who are diagnosed with severe endometriosis affecting the bowel. The cumulative success rate was modeled after four ART cycles. 
So as described by Dr. Veracellini and co-authors in the invited commentary, this paper has some very notable contributions. First of all, it is notable that endometriosis of the bowel is now being diagnosed without surgery, but instead with ultrasound and MRI. I also find it notable that a single referral sent I also find it notable that a single referral center can have such a comprehensive case series of greater than 100 patients in a short amount of time. Finally, as noted in the title, success with IVF is satisfactory. Very European way of describing it. Overall, the study is limited by the fact that there isn't a comparison to say if satisfactory is better than prior surgery or other techniques. However, the author's finding is not without merit. The alternative option of bowel surgery prior to IVF is certainly to have consequences and may not actually improve outcomes. So in some cases, a randomized controlled trial should not or need not be performed, and I applaud the authors for this study. Similarly, in the endometriosis section, this next paper looks at crossroad decisions in deep endometriosis treatment, a qualitative study among patients by Jerome Metzenmakers with senior author Frank Wilhelm Jensen from the Netherlands. This was a qualitative study using semi-structured, in-depth focus group methodology. They interviewed 19 women with a diagnosis of deep endometriosis who were between 27 to 47 years old. There were three focus groups. One interviewed women who were facing a therapeutic choice between medical treatment and surgery, and two focus groups that included women who are already being treated and had made that therapeutic decision. I really enjoyed the methods section of this paper. They nicely describe why they chose focus groups over individual interviews. They use the technique of thematic analysis. And for those who are not familiar with how to conduct qualitative studies, this is a method to emerge themes and subthemes from a current subjects in the data. Transcripts of the interviews were read, common themes were formulated, data was classified by codes, and was divided into themes and subthemes using deductive and inductive coding. 45 codes emerged and codes were deleted or merged or renamed when there was similarity and consensus was created to result in a code book of 31 codes divided into subthemes. To pare it down, they were able to have three major themes. Theme one was disease impact and motives for treatment. Theme two was expectations of the surgical process. And theme three was important factors in the decision process. Each of these had important sub-themes within them. I thought it was a really well done study. It highlights deep endometriosis from the patient perspective. I think we see so many studies that look at, I guess back to your point about what's satisfactory, that is a uh, touch upon the patient perspective. But what I really liked about this study is it, it gives us an insight into how our patients think and I think the qualitative research can be a really powerful tool. It's difficult to do in some instances, but it can truly be a powerful tool and really helpful to understand the patient perspective. There were some important points that I took away from this. So from that first theme, disease impact and motives for treatment, the main driver for treatment was pain and negative influence on all aspects of quality of life. Women reported that most did not understand the pain and suffering and the time to diagnosis was prolonged. From the second theme, expectations about the surgical process, it emerged that most women expected that surgery would lead to a significant reduction in pain and improvement in quality of life. 
Important factors in the decision-making process was the third theme, and women sought information from social media or peer groups. They also sought the feelings of remaining in control of the process. And interestingly, in this study, women in these focus groups emphasized they felt that there was too much discussion about conception and future fertility, and patients wanted more personalized advice. They wanted patient-centered personalized care, and women really in this focus group wanted to focus on pain and reduction of pain as the single most important factor driving decision-making. And I think this, this study really serves as a reminder of how disruptive endometriosis, particularly deep endometriosis, is on patients' lives and how much pain and suffering goes along with this disease process. Eve, I'm also impressed that um, we have some qualitative surgery in the journal. Um, I think we can learn a lot from our patients rather than just assuming we know what's best for them. So this is the first lesson, hopefully, of many. Yeah, and I, I've started to do some of my own qualitative research with regard to egg freezing and attitudes about egg freezing. And so I think I was particularly interested in the methodology that they used in the coding. And it, it's a powerful tool, I think, in order to really systematically study things from the patient perspective. So moving on to the environment section of the journal, Sateno and colleagues from Paris present the study Impact of Sleep on Female and Male Reproductive Functions, a Systematic Review. This was a systematic review of 33 published studies that looked at associations of sleep with ovarian function, sperm function, natural fertility, and IVF outcomes. Overall, they found that female and male fertility, as well as IVF outcomes, may be affected by short sleep duration evening chronotype, meaning what time a patient goes to sleep, or shift night work schedules. Most of these findings associated sleep with markers, surrogate markers of fertility, such as ovulation or semen parameters. Data on actual natural fecundity and ART outcomes were mixed in the study. The authors conclude that sleep may be an original and innovative parameter for fertility and that their findings warrant further study. Auger and colleagues from Montreal wrote the commentary, and they took the further step of actually taking the studies from the systematic review and performing a meta-analysis on them. The meta-analysis quantified and confirmed what the primary authors wrote in the systematic review. The commentary authors concluded that further research will be needed to determine if there's a true causal relationship with fertility, or if poor sleep is just a symptom of other underlying conditions. I do want to commend the primary authors for not doing the meta-analysis. The data in this systematic review was very heterogeneous, and it was appropriate to summarize it systematically without combining the data. Just because we can mathematically combine data doesn't mean that we always should. There was another paper in the reproductive endocrinology section that also dealt with sleep, and this was the association between circadian rhythm disruption and PCOS by Feng Feng Wang with senior author Fan Zhu from Hangzhou, China, and University College London. And I'm just going to summarize this really briefly. It doesn't give us many answers, but it was a two-part study. The first part was a survey study that was a multi-center survey in China with 436 women with PCOS and 715 controls to assess the association between night shift work and PCOS. They found that women who had PCOS also had a family history of PCOS, but most interestingly, they found that subjects who had ever engaged in night shift work 
had nearly double the odds of having PCOS compared to those who never engaged in night shift work. And then on subgroup analysis, they identified that the association only remains statistically significant for those that work night shift for two years or more. So arguing that sleep disruption alters menstrual physiology. The second part of the study used rats and humans to examine hormone levels such as melatonin, and they didn't find differences in melatonin levels between women with and without PCOS, both in rats and humans. Then they did transcriptomic analysis on granulosa cells collected at the time of egg retrieval on three patients with PCOS and three healthy controls. And they found differences in expression of clock-related transcriptomic factors between the patients. They performed RNA-seq at various times over a 24-hour period to analyze differences in cells' autonomous biorhythms, and they identified some differences between groups. As more data are emerging on sleep and fertility, I, I thought this was really interesting. It's an underexplored area within our field, and I very much look forward to seeing more data, more studies that pertain to menstrual cyclicity and circadian biology. So I'm going to move to uh, what's called the genetic sections, which is really epigenetics in this case. And the paper is titled Identification of Unique Epigenetic Profiles in Women with Diminished Ovarian Reserve. The first author is Dr. Olson with senior author Dr. Grandel from Copenhagen. The goal of this study was to investigate whether epigenetic profiles of granulosa cells and leukocytes are different in women with diminished ovarian reserve from those with normal ovarian reserve. The premise of the study is that our scientific community has been looking for markers of ovarian reserve for quite a while, but also the etiology of ovarian reserve. And the intersection, therefore, might be in epigenetics. Example of postmyotic or epigenetic changes include DNA methylation or telomere length, which is associated with cellular senescence. So these changes can be measured in so-called specialized cells, or in this case, granulosa cells, to look at the effect in the ovary, or generic cells, like somatic cells. So there's limited knowledge about epigenetic changes in the ovarian follicle and how they might differ from other cells in the body. So the finding of this study shows that there are differential methylation patterns in women with diminished ovarian reserve compared to normals, and most of these epigenetic mutations suggest that the mutations are in the granulosa cells and not in somatic cells. In other words, if epigenetic changes represent accumulation of aging, it is more commonly found in the granulosa cells than in other extra ovarian tissues. So this study is preliminary and interesting as it suggests that ovarian aging is not simply somatic aging. So one of the possible utilities of this test is a potential biomarker, perhaps a prognostic marker for premature decreased ovarian reserve, perhaps better than we have now in terms of AMH and antrophollicle count. But to me, it really begs the question is whether decreased ovarian reserve is a specific tissue aging or whether ovarian aging is just a canary in the coal mine of other aging and other cells that might have long-term effects for a woman's health. This paper doesn't answer all those questions, but it's certainly a start. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating area of research. And I too often wonder if ovarian aging is independent of other aging processes or part of the larger spectrum and whether or not it may be a harbinger of future disease. 
This next paper is in the mental health section, and it is called Psychosocial Determinants of Women's Intention and Willingness to Freeze Their Eggs by Lucy Coy and Catherine White from Queensland, Australia. The objective of this study was to examine the psychosocial factors that influence Australian women's intention to freeze their eggs. The authors examined the factors influencing a woman's intention and willingness to undergo egg freezing. They used the theory of planned behavior. They were able to harness data from this study to predict women's intentions. They found that the strongest predictors of intent to freeze were a person's perception of egg freezing, perceived control over the process, approval from others, and cognitive bias from the depictions of egg freezing in the media. These findings suggest avenues through which we can engage more comprehensively with people presenting for counseling regarding egg freezing and facilitate decision-making that is most in line with future goals and interests. What I found most interesting about this paper was that neither objective nor subjective knowledge about egg freezing or outcomes influences intentions. In other words, what they found was that knowledge was not a key decision-making factor. The reflections for this piece was written by Deborah Ikina Abel, who points out the lack of generalizability of this study. The findings are greatly limited by the absence of diversity in race, ethnicity, sexual identity, and sexual orientation. She comments that the authors highlight what we know from our daily practice. Data and facts can only go so far. We need to engage not only as purveyors of medical knowledge, but to engage at a human level, addressing attitudes, fears, and concerns about treatment calling for a holistic team-based approach to counseling on egg freezing. And I think these points are really well taken. Eve, you're really saying that women are not making decisions based on knowledge? Is it really true that women, and I'm sure men, are more influenced by subtle advertisements or knowledge or perceptions in the world than actually all this work we, we put into to try to educate them? Yeah, I mean, that's what the study shows. I really was shocked that the take-home point was that our patients are much more influenced by the media and perceptions of egg freezing in the media, as well as what their family and friends thought, rather than those one-on-one -on -one conversations with their physician. I think it completely undermines so much of what we're trying to do in our field. Well, I don't disbelieve those findings, but I'm not gonna give up on education. Thank you, Eve. So now we're moving on to the reproductive endocrinology section of the journal. Chen and colleagues study PCOS in the article, Neck Circumference is a Good Predictor for Insulin Resistance in Women with PCOS. This was a cross-sectional study of 143 women who had polycystic ovarian syndrome. Neck circumference was found to be positively correlated with BMI, waist circumference, and the HOMA IR insulin resistance measure. Neck circumference had a similar ability to predict insulin resistance as compared to both BMI and waist circumference and waist hip ratio. The authors conclude by recommending neck circumference as a novel, simple, practical, and reliable anthropometric measure to be used in predicting the risk of insulin resistance in patients with PCOS. Sieber from Austria notes in the commentary that these data warrant replication in other ethnicities as this was done in a Chinese population and see if they are corroborated more broadly. She concludes that physical exam findings may be able to replace laboratory tests for some patients and reminds us that sometimes a simple physical exam finding can yield important information in our clinical management. So 
I want to talk about a comparison of 2D and 3D ultrasonographic methods for the evaluation of ovarian follicle counts and classifications of ovarian morphology. The first author is Dr. Vandenbrink with senior author Lou Han from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. So even Micah, newsflash, technology has caught up to how we measure ovarian follicles. Clearly we need 3D ultrasound because 2D ultrasound is simply not enough. The goal of this study was to determine the level of agreement across follicle number and defining PCOS using 2D and 3D ultrasound as well as real-time versus still images. So they looked at 16 women, or in a way to increase their sample size, 32 ovaries were analyzed. The main finding of this study, there was considerable variability in counting the number of follicles per ovary using various ultrasound techniques. That doesn't surprise me. But they also conclude that 2D ultrasound can overclassify and overcall number of follicles, therefore have a greater propensity to classify or misclassify women as PCOS based on ovarian morphology. So all jokes aside, this is an interesting paper for those who want to delve into ultrasound techniques as authors compare meticulously eight different types of ultrasound, including real-time and offline ultrasound. This is an interesting article that suggests that the way we diagnose PCOS based on number of follicles is clearly artifactual. As ultrasound techniques have gotten better, the criteria of the number of follicles that make and PCO ultrasound has increased. So overall, I think this paper teaches that we might need to recalibrate and perhaps reassess our definition of PCOS. Because clearly, by the way we count follicles has no bearing on whether someone actually has PCOS or does not have PCOS. The diagnosis should not be based on technology reviews or technology upgrades. That means Mrs. Smith has PCOS when I use an old ultrasound machine in my office, but when she moves to Chicago and goes to Eve and she counts more follicles, now all of a sudden she has PCOS? Clearly we need more work on the diagnosis of PCOS, not just on how to count follicles. I'm not surprised, Kurt, as you said, that different technologies or even different sonographers would count differently and that you could measure that and demonstrate that statistically. What did surprise me is that that might actually change the classification of a patient from one diagnosis to another. And if that's actually the case, then I do think uh, standardizing those processes and making sure that we're looking at the patient and not just um, a measurement in front of us is important. So that, that part of the paper did surprise me. Well, I think it goes back to what we discussed earlier. Um, we need to validate our test first before we can use it for diagnostic criteria. If we don't really know how to measure follicles, it's awfully hard to make a legitimate clinical threshold for when somebody has PCOS or not. So staying along the lines of PCOS, Zhang and colleagues from Shandong University in China study microRNAs this month in their study called Differential Expression Profile of Plasma Exosomal MicroRNAs in Women with Polycystic Ovary Syndrome. Overall, they found 34 exosomal microRNAs which were differentially expressed or regulated in women with PCOS compared to non-PCOS controls. These microRNAs were involved in pathways that included MAPK signaling, endocytosis, circadian rhythms, which maybe gets back to Eve's earlier comments on the PCOS and sleep study, and cancer pathways. While this paper may not be relevant to the clinician reader of the journal, it confirms some known microRNAs that are different in women with PCOS and raises novel microRNAs for those who study PCOS disease progression. Well, Micah and Eve, I'm going to end with a really straightforward but important article as well. Evaluating efficacy of intravenous 
Arbectacin in Reducing Blood Loss During Abdominal Myomectomy, a Randomized Clinical Trial. The first author is Dr. Tahir and senior author Dr. Sakai, and this study was performed in Cairo, Egypt. This is a straightforward randomized trial to assess if a long-acting synthetic oxytocin called carbectocin can reduce the amount of blood loss in abdominal myomectomy. This agent selectively binds to oxytocin receptors in smooth muscle of the uterus, resulting in contractions and increased tone. This drug has been used in obstetrics, but has only been sporadically reported in the use for women undergoing myomectomies. The agent was administered intravenously as one dose prior to surgery, and a group of eight surgeons were able to recruit 138 women in six months' time. That's very impressive. That's really a high volume of myomectomies. It surprised me that that many myomectomies were still being performed. Overall, the intervention decreased blood loss in the surgery by about 180 milliliters, improved postoperative hemoglobin by approximately one gram from nine to 10, and reduced the number of people that needed transfusions from 17 in the non-treated group to eight in the treated group. There were no major side effects reported and no intraoperative complications noted. It's a pleasure to see that a potential low-cost intervention can have real implications in patient care. We all know that myomectomies can be a, a morbid procedure. If there's a way to reduce bleeding and transfusion, that's obviously of clinical benefit. Like all clinical trials, we have to be a little bit careful about the generalizability. This study only looked at abdominal myomectomies, not robotic myomectomies, not laparoscopic myomectomies, and it didn't compare to other agents that might also be like oxytocin or have benefit. However, refreshing to see a straightforward randomized clinical trial that may have impact on clinical care. So there are also two video articles um, also talking about surgical techniques, the technique of surgical vaginal anastomosis in uterine transplant patients and creation of a novel inflatable vaginal stent for macindode vaginoplasty, as well as laparoscopic scission of pericardial and diaphragmatic endometriosis. Please look at those articles online as well. So we've reached conclusion of another Fertility and Sterility on Air. Thank you to all that are listening to us. I can see that the downloads are way up, so please spread it out to your friends and uh, rate us online. Um, it's a pleasure to work with Micah and Eve. Thanks, Kurt. It was a really fascinating episode, and I hope everyone enjoyed it. We took some of your feedbacks to discuss the articles at more length, so I hope you enjoyed our more in-depth discussion and interpretation with some of the key articles for the journal. Keep sending feedback. We'd love to hear from you, and see everyone in April. We'll see you again in April. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.